0: Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir
1: Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human.
2: This week on the podcast, we talked about a topic that we have heard about all too frequently on the news, gun violence. We were lucky enough to be joined by Dr. John Courtbeek, a trauma and critical care surgeon at the University of Calgary. We asked Dr. Courtbeek about the topic of gun control in general and specifically on gun control policies in Canada and how general surgeons and general surgery residents can get involved in political advocacy.
0: Uh, I grew up in Edmonton and uh went to school there, including uh, medical school at the University of Alberta. At that time, when you finished high school, your choices were simple. You went to work or you went to the University of Alberta. The whole notion of going elsewhere to uh, study in postgraduate studies was uh, a real rarity back then. Uh, But I had great training and uh, completed that. And I went on to uh, complete uh, general surgical training at the University of Calgary after an internship in Ohio. I then pursued additional training in critical care and trauma, both at the University of Calgary and in Birmingham, Alabama, which was a great experience, uh, really opened my eyes and I learned a lot. And since then, I've been uh, practicing in uh, Calgary, Alberta for the past three decades in general surgery, trauma and critical care.
1: You have really been a, uh, a pillar and a foundational uh, person or piece in Canadian trauma care on on really every level. Um, And we could talk to you about so much of that for for so long. Um, But really what we wanted to focus on today, and I hope you're still willing, is to talk about uh, gun control and gun violence in particular and and how that relates to us as as surgeons across the country and and maybe comparatively throughout the world. So I'm curious if you could start off by teaching us a little bit about Um, gun use, um, gun violence, gun injuries in in Canada, and I think in particular for a lot of us, yourself included, who have spent years in the US, um, maybe framing the the differences between countries and and culture as well.
0: Well, that question covered a lot of ground. So uh, maybe I'll start at the beginning and and describe why I became interested in uh, injury control and reducing the burden of injury due to firearms. Uh, I grew up uh, hunting with my dad, and we would go uh, bird hunting in northeastern Alberta, uh, mostly uh, ducks, occasional geese, and rouse. So I, I grew up using a 12-gauge shotgun. And my parents also thought it was important for me to uh, learn what it was like to you know live in the rural area. Uh, so they sent me out to... Uh, French Canadian farm for a couple of summers, and at the age of six and seven, I was unleashed on the Gophers with the 22s and getting a few cents a tail as a reward for any that we were able to uh, capture and shoot. Uh, so I became familiar with guns at an early age and uh, then didn't do much hunting for a long time, but uh, more recently, as I've had a bit more time, I um, started hunting with uh Friends and family. I have uh, members of my family that hunt big game and and birds. And I don't own a gun, but I enjoy going out with them and walking in the woods. And I enjoy the fruits of their labor and some fine venison afterwards. Uh, Like both of you, I've dedicated most of my career to uh, trying to care for the patients in front of me. And as a trauma surgeon, a big part of that was uh, improving care for the injured, and we spent a lot of time uh, improving trauma systems uh, in Canada and working with other countries to improve education in trauma. And when we did focus on injury control, particularly in the uh, 80s and 90s, the greatest burden of injury was from motor vehicle crashes. So our our injury control efforts were uh, focused on that, and rightly so. But over the past decade, I've had a greater awareness of the of the increased burden of, of uh, injury from firearms. I think the eye-opening event for me was uh, the Claris Home uh, mass shooting event, which occurred in Alberta about 10 years ago. It was a group of, of kids coming home from college for Christmas, and uh, they were chased down and then shot by a deranged ex-boyfriend with a Semi-automatic, legally purchased handgun. Uh, there were three of them were killed at the scene. The gunman committed suicide, and the one sole survivor arrived at our trauma center. We cared for her for a number of weeks afterwards. And I just thought that was tragic and a complete waste. And then over the last decade, I've noticed uh, a steady increase, or at least I seem to notice a steady increase in gun violence in uh, Calgary with a uh, greater number of admissions, primarily from handguns uh, in our trauma centers. Uh, the the uh, final inciting event was the uh, Danforth shooting when one of our colleagues, Dr. Najma, Ahmed, spoke out about uh, the injuries she had seen and uh, you know brought up the, the issue of gun control. And rather than being debated on the merits of her arguments, uh, she was attacked personally with a number of, of complaints submitted to the college which were eventually dismissed as vexatious, but she approached uh, a number of trauma surgeons around the country for help, and together we formed an organization called Canadian Doctors for Protection for Guns with the goal of of approaching uh, the burden of injury due to firearms as a public health uh, measure. So those are the events that led to me uh, to be speaking to you uh, today about this subject. so the question is, you know, where does Canada stand with respect to uh, gun injuries and firearm injuries, and is it a public health issue in Canada? And if you look at the global burden of disease from firearms, the uh, there's an excellent study that was recently published uh, as part of the global burden of disease studies, which are partially supported by the Gates Foundation and uh, emanate from the University of Washington. And this one described uh, the numbers, which are are somewhat horrific. There are approximately a quarter million people a year that die due to uh, gunshot wounds and uh, about two-thirds of them are homicides, one-third are suicide, a few are unintentional. Uh, the interesting thing is they're certainly not evenly distributed around the world. There's uh, a number of countries that are have a very high incidence of uh, injuries and deaths due to firearms And that belt extends from the United States through to uh, Mexico, Guatemala, Venezuela, Colombia, and Brazil, and they together account for about half the global burden of disease. The United States and Brazil together account for over 30% of the global burden of disease uh, for firearm injuries. And it's quite striking when you travel around the world if you're fortunate enough to visit other countries. You know, I I had the good fortune to teach in Laos, for example. We were teaching trauma resuscitation to residents there who had never seen a gunshot wound. So that was quite striking. And certainly uh, Canada compares favorably to those countries, uh, but we don't compare quite as well to like countries, meaning high-income countries in the OECD uh, group. In the OECD group, Canada has the fifth highest rate of, of... deaths due to firearms Uh, we have a higher rate of suicide due to firearms compared to the global average and a lower rate of homicide but together our numbers are still uh, near the top amongst that group of countries which are similar to to us when you look at uh, canadian statistics the the numbers of people killed each year is approximately 600 out of the 4,000 suicide deaths, are, are due to uh, firearms. So about 20% of suicides. If, with respect to homicides, there are about 600-650 people that are murdered each year in Canada, and uh, about 270 of those patients are are killed by firearms. Uh, besides that, we are seeing at least locally an increase in the number of patients that we're admitting with uh, firearm injuries to our trauma centers. So we recently pulled Alberta Trauma Registry data, and the Alberta Trauma Registry data showed that the numbers have doubled over the past 10 years from 30 to 60 ISS 12 admissions per year. But we know that ISS is not a good measure for penetrating trauma, as these patients could have multiple uh, anatomic uh, organ injuries in one compartment, so they don't score high, despite having severe injuries. In Calgary, we're fortunate. we. Uh, capture all patients admitted admitted for firearm injuries in our trauma database, and uh, interestingly, and uh, perhaps shocking at the same time, our numbers went from 90 year in 2009 to uh, about 50 year over the last two years, suggesting that Alberta is now admitting over 100 uh, trauma patients a year secondary to firearm injuries, and if you extrapolate that across Canada. Uh, Alberta has a higher rate of firearm injuries than the Canadian average, but it still means that there are probably between 500 and 1,000 patients who have suffered injuries from firearms that require admission to hospital uh, each year in Canada. And beyond that, of course, there's an increase in uh, violent crime, which is primarily associated with handguns, about 7,000 incidents last year, uh, from what I can tell, and uh, the trauma and stress that comes with that. So in Canada, we're not as bad as our neighbors to the south, but we're in a bit of a bad neighborhood.
2: Dr. Courby, you've talked about sort of where Canada is in the global kind of scale of things. Can you talk a little bit about what gun control measures are actually present in Canada right now? Because I think that's a significant um, kind of source of kind of confusion among people and um, understanding uh, the differences between the U.S. and Canada in terms of gun control.
0: Sure. Well, I think first of all, it's important to just back up a bit. And and whenever people talk about the burden of disease due to firearms, the debate immediately polarizes into gun control versus no gun control. And we actually don't approach any other public health issue that way. So, uh, you know, the first question is, is it a public health issue? And a public health issue means that Uh, There's a significant burden of disease that it could potentially affect anybody or most of the community. Uh, The incidence might be rising. Uh, There's a significant cost associated with that disease. Uh, There may be significant disability associated with the disease, and most importantly, that the disease is potentially preventable. Uh, The other thing that's really important when looking at anything through a public health lens is the pragmatic realities of public health which are that to address an issue it has to be acceptable to introduce measures in the culture in which you live Uh, it has to make economic sense and the political will has to be there and usually the political will follows the former two meaning that the the culture or the body politic will accept the measures and they make economic sense, or they're at least economically viable. And we're seeing that play out in real time, uh, with COVID where there's the science of preventing, uh, disease transmission due to the COVID, uh, virus. And then there's the political reality of wrestling with what a uh, public will accept and what does it cost to implement the measures. And that has played out differently, even across Canada, as we all know. So. Uh, those measures are really important when looking at uh, addressing the burden of disease due to firearms. And typically when we uh, discuss public health measures, we talk about the ease of public health, which are uh, effective care. And again, uh, all three of us have spent most of our lives trying to improve effective care. And in Canada, we're fortunate to have really good trauma systems with uh ready access to pre-hospital care, rapid transport to uh, trauma centers, and uh, appropriate triage and good care in the hospitals and good rehab. So uh, there have been huge improvements in that. So that leaves the other measures that could be used to approach uh, the burden of injury due to firearms, which include uh, engineering, so smart guns, uh, enforcement, which means legislation, Uh, and enforcing that legislation. There's no sense having a law if you don't enforce it. Uh, It means um, creating an environment where uh, you reduce the risk of that injury and that's where gun control comes in, in terms of the the gun and mostly handguns and and military style assault weapons in uh, the context of reducing the burden of disease uh, and the specific topic of gun control. The history of of that environmental part of the public health issue of firearms in Canada is iterative, meaning that we've introduced a number of measures slowly over time, but primarily in Canada, they involve uh, licensure, registration um, and background checks. So in Canada, in order to uh, procure a firearm, uh, you're required to uh, submit an application to obtain a palace license. Uh, You are submitted to a background check, which looks for evidence of uh, a criminal record or uh, mental illness. And it also um, requires that you undergo mandatory education before you're granted a license. And then the ongoing requirements uh, and your ability to transport the weapons depend on whether it's an unrestricted weapon, meaning that the typical shotguns and hunting rifles that most Canadian gun owners own and uh, the more restricted types of weapons uh, which include handguns and military style uh, uh, semi-automatic assault weapons which are the ones that are of most interest uh, to those of us uh, involved in the public health and trying to reduce the burden of disease from uh, firearms Uh, so all that uh, has evolved over time in Canada the most recent legislation includes uh, bills c71 and c21 and they brought in uh, additional requirements for background checks extending the time frame of the check beyond the five years to any time in the past for a history of, uh, of criminal behavior or uh, mental illness. And uh, uh, some more stringent requirements on uh, transportation of restricted weapons. And then the most recent bill is bringing in uh, a number of additional Measures which remain in evolution, but those include uh, red flag laws, which uh, allow uh, people who are identified as potentially being at risk of suicide or uh, posing a risk to others uh, for homicide or harm of having their guns uh, temporarily removed. Um, you can think of it a little bit like um, taking the keys away from a drunk driver, is one analogy that is used to describe red flag laws. Uh, it also uh, potentially will uh, ban military-style assault weapons with large-capacity magazines. Um, those would be the, the probably the two most important measures, in addition to the ones I've already mentioned. So um, licensure and regulation of firearms in Canada is nothing new. It's been around for 100 years, but it has uh, waxed and waned over the over time. Um, the most controversial policy was probably the introduction of the long gun registry, which was introduced and then withdrawn. Um, but that's the history of, of legislation in
1: Canada. You know, your your description of the nuances of that are are, are all you know so helpful and I, I think interesting. And and the the way that you know, not surprisingly. I think, you know, in in agreement from a lot of us uh, that you framed it in terms of a public health uh, issue and potentially crisis, that does make a lot of sense. But, you know, if we move sideways for a little bit, I I wanted to ask you about the emotion of it and, and what your impression was regarding that. Because, you know, in the U.S., it is obviously such a hot button issue that doesn't seem like it can move forward because of that political system. And certainly... You know the importance of the second amendment and having a regulated militia to, to sort of maintain the security of a free state so to speak goes back you know well over uh, a couple hundred years um, i get all that but we don't really have that same history in canada or certainly a lot more soft spoken about it but my sense as i'm sure yours is in talking to people one-on-one quietly there's still a lot of passionate um, concerns about any movement forward with regard to gun restriction and, and, uh, and, uh, and really the, the importance of, of a lot of these firearms. And I, I, I'm curious what, what your sense of that, that emotional uh, interaction with the data you presented is.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's always important to respect opinion. Uh, but as physicians, we have a professional obligation um, not only to provide the best care we can for the patients that are immediately in front of us, but we also are expected to advocate uh, to improve the health of the populations we serve. That's an expectation that's written into the accreditation of our medical schools. Uh, whenever we fill out evaluations of the students and residents that rotate in our services, often one of the check boxes that we uh, that we uh, complete is you know are they aware of the determinants of disease and do they have a broader outlook on how to reduce the burden of illness from the diseases on that rotation so we do have a professional obligation uh, that that we are held to and uh, it again it's okay to have an opinion but it's important to frame that opinion as physicians based on evidence again people have very strong opinions in the current pandemic on vaccines and public health measures, yet uh, universally our professional organizations have stuck to the science and made recommendations based on what the best public health uh, measures are in order to mitigate the effects of the pandemic. So uh, gun violence and the the burden of disease due to firearms should be no different. The United States, as you mentioned, is different. And, you know, Canada, uh, we are, are, our only neighbor is the United States. So we uh, are affected by what goes on in America to a great extent. And the U.S. uh, has a different history and culture than we do. We share a lot of culture with the United States, but we also have have a different legacy. Uh, And, you know, peace order and good government is kind of the the Canadian uh, phrase that describes us. And I think it's uh, You know, it rings true if uh, you've traveled across this country and experienced it. In the United States, the Second Amendment, which as you pointed out, was uh, uh, brought in to allow a well-armed militia to protect the state against autocracy, um, was certainly the intent. Uh, I'll leave listeners to judge how well that is uh, working in recent times. But the second amendment does not prevent states uh, or the federal government from prohibiting types of weapons. Uh, So even in the United States, there's quite a bit of variation between states on what is and what is not accepted on the degree of background checks and uh, licensure and uh, training that is required to purchase a firearm, uh, which allows for a, a big natural experiment because the United States is so large. And the United States also has a couple of other pieces of legislation that uh, indirectly affect us. One is the Dickey Amendment, which prohibited uh, the CDC from investing public funds in uh, gun control research, which dramatically reduced uh, research into the burden of disease and effective measures in mitigating uh, gun violence in the United States. And then they uh, also brought in uh, tort legislation, which prohibited... uh, Uh, litigation against manufacturers and sellers of weapons Uh, and in any other business uh, including cars if you create a product which harms others ultimately you're held accountable and liable for that Uh, but firearms remain the exception Uh, we don't have a large you know domestic uh, manufacturer in uh, supply of of, you know handguns and military style assault weapons so the tort uh, issue in Canada affects us because if you want to sue, you have to sue across the border. Um, the, uh, the research piece, uh, you know, the Canadian research enterprise is smaller than, uh, the American one and there's hasn't been interest until recently in researching, uh, uh, it, you know, what measures that would mitigate uh, the burden of injury from uh, firearms. But, uh, One of the reasons we founded the Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns was to create a professional organization that would invest in research to address uh, and provide evidence for effective public health measures in reducing the burden of disease. So there are important differences between Canada and the United States, but we are influenced by our neighbors to the south. There's no doubt
1: about it. Just
2: to kind of double down on what Dr. Ball is saying and echo. The, what you're saying about kind of the emotion that dogs this whole debate. I mean, even in, uh, and you, you'll recall that, you know, as part of your role in the organization that you're talking about, uh, you know, there was there was a rally and uh, some demonstrations and some more, you know, uh, political involvement uh, that you were p- part of uh, organizing and, and administrating. And you had kind of passed this message along to the residents in Calgary, again, behind closed doors just in an email chain, uh, there was significant, uh, without without naming individuals, uh, but there was some significant consternation among the resident body, with some some residents really getting upset that, you know, why are we even part of this whole, you know, gun control thing, you know, uh, we we use our gun uh, guns peacefully, and we have great laws in Canada, so why are we trying to take away guns from everyone, and, and there was quite a bit of, uh, you know, debate and an argument even within the residents in Calgary. So, you know, my question to you is, what do you think the uh, actual implications uh, are of bringing forth some of the legislation and uh, amendments that you the, that the group is proposing? Specifically, I'm thinking around assault rifles, um, and and educate me about any other uh, particular um, actions that the group is taking. But what do you think the real impact is going to be? of making these kinds of changes and, uh, and and trying to advocate for this.
0: Right. So I think, you know, I was recently on a CAGS membership committee meeting and we were discussing topics for future Canadian surgical forums and polling the members. And one of the suggestions is, well, we should poll the members uh, regarding what their thoughts are on gun control. Are they for it or against it? And uh, my comment was, well, before you do that, you need to educate people so that they understand what the evidence is and what is being actually proposed because the strong opinions often are based on opinion and not fact uh, without even understanding what is being proposed, what is being discussed and what is the evidence behind it. And I think that that probably was true of uh, the email discourse with your residents, if you asked any of those residents, you know, what measures are being proposed, what is the evidence for and against those measures, uh, which firearms are being discussed and what is the burden of disease in Canada? Uh, I doubt if any of them would have been able to answer those questions and yet they were voicing strong opinions for and against the issue. Uh, so the first step, uh, and again, this is one of the ease of public health, is to educate people so that they understand what the evidence is. So one of the questions is, uh, you know, what what is the burden of disease and uh, what, what are the factors that Uh, affect that burden of disease. So I've already described what the numbers are in Canada. Uh, There are three main factors that uh, are associated with the burden of disease with respect to uh, firearms and injuries. And those are uh, being in a country that is uh, either a producer or a major transport conduit for uh, illicit drugs. Unfortunately, Canada is neither of those things. Uh, Guatemala is which is why it's in trouble. Uh, The second is uh, the the worse your social development index the higher your uh, probability of uh, interpersonal violence and gun violence is and uh, the highest social development index in the world is uh, typically Norway and SDIs are based on literacy, access to education, um, you know birth rates that approach replacement, access to health care, all the things that we associate with a, a good quality life and that we enjoy in Canada. And Canada scores quite high in SDIs, with one exception. Uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity amongst our Indigenous uh, population in, in Canada, with uh, some groups doing well and others doing poorly. But as a group, uh, they tend to have a poor social development index than the rest of Canada, and as a result, are overrepresented in uh, in uh, the burden of disease due to firearms Uh, so Canada has an opportunity to provide uh, greater uh, access uh, to economic opportunity education etc to our Indigenous peoples and I think the country is slowly waking up to that and the Indigenous peoples themselves are becoming more active in uh, advocating for themselves as well so hopefully we'll see some improvements there because they are overrepresented Uh, in firearm injuries and deaths in Canada. And then the third factor, which is clearly associated with the burden of disease around the world is the number of firearms. And the firearms that are associated primarily with interpersonal violence and to some degree suicide, and certainly with admissions to hospitals are handguns. And uh, the firearms that are associated with multiple mass shooting events are military style weapons, you know semi-automatic uh, weapons with large capacity magazines. So, with respect to uh, gun control that restricts access to those weapons, uh, the the question is, uh, does it make a difference? And the best example of whether it makes a difference or or not are number one, is there an association between the prevalence. Or access to those firearms and the burden of disease? And the simple answer is yes. If you go down the list of OECD countries, uh, the greater the number of uh, firearms, the higher the incidence of, uh, of firearm injuries. Um, and Canada is actually one of the, uh, again, top five countries in terms of uh, its index with respect to firearm ownership. The US is clearly at the top, but uh, you know we uh, have a greater number of firearms than most other uh, high-income countries what we don't know is what are those firearms at least i don't know what they are somebody may have that information certainly the federal government through its registration you would think would but i wasn't uh, able to find it and the distribution of of firearms and shotguns which are seldom associated with uh, interpersonal violence um, and not clearly associated with suicide versus handguns and military style assault weapons, which are associated with those things. Uh, we I don't have that breakdown for Canada, so I don't know what it is, but I do know that we have a high number of firearms compared to other countries, and we have a higher uh, as expected burden of disease. And then the second question is, well, what happens when you change the environment? So the best examples of that uh, come from the UK, which, um, has a long history of, of gun control. In fact, the British were worried after World War I. So they already began restricting military style weapons uh, going back nearly a century. Uh, but they had access to uh, handguns, including semi automatic handguns, as well as hunting rifles uh, through most of the 20th century. And then they had a, a terrible event uh, where they had a, a, a mass shooting in uh, the northern UK where I believe 16 children were, were injured and another 16 were killed along with the teacher. And there was such a, a public outcry and so much uh, horror expressed as a result of that event uh, that uh, they subsequently banned handguns. And they have seen a, a significant progressive decrease in the uh, number of uh, Firearm injuries. Their rate is about one tenth the rate in Canada right now. Uh, so they clearly have shown a benefit from restricting access to that type of weapon. Uh, the other example is Australia, which also had a, uh, a mass shooting event where I think over fifty people were shot. So the the uh, that was in Port Arthur again in the mid nineties, and over thirty people were killed. And their reaction again was as intense as it was in the uk they banned military style assault weapons and they didn't ban handguns but what they did was they said well you can't buy a handgun for self defense if you are an active member of a shooting club uh, and you act and you participate regularly in uh, target practice uh, and document that then you can undergo a six-month probationary period where you use a weapon that is secured on-site storage belongs to the club and then after that you can uh, you know purchase your own weapon they also had a buyback program for the uh, weapons that didn't meet the bill with respect to their new legislation so they decreased the number of firearms in the country I think they purchased almost three quarters of a million weapons during their buyback program and again they saw a tremendous fall in the burden of injury due to uh, uh, firearms Um, and the other thing that is uh, interesting in Um, Australia is that they, like Canada, Canada has had about 19, uh, it has had 19 mass multiple shooting events over the past uh, three decades, but we've had six of those in the last five years, uh, including the Nova Scotia massacre uh, last summer. Um, And Australia was having similar numbers. They were having about three every four years. After they introduced legislation, they outlawed military-style assault weapons and they had a huge buyback program, and they severely restricted access to handguns, they've had zero mass shooting events in 20 years. So the evidence is quite striking. There's clearly an association between access to these firearms, handguns, and military-style assault weapons, and uh, the burden of injury, and there clearly is an associated decrease in the burden of disease in countries that have further restricted access to these weapons. In Canada, most gun owners, um, ranchers, hunters, farmers own uh, hunting rifles and shotguns, but there are people who own handguns and military-style assault weapons. I went on a website uh, this weekend and you know just checked to see what you can still buy, and you can. Uh, go out and purchase uh, you know a military style semi-automatic weapon with a large uh, caliber magazine which is defined as more than 10 rounds you could purchase uh, magazines with 20 30 or more clips in a single uh, case and go out and uh, be on your merry way so those weapons are still available in Canada and as long as they're available um, we will continue to see endemic violence from handguns and we will continue to see Uh, multiple mass shooting events, uh, irrespective of the fact that most people who own those weapons are illegal gun owners who abide by the law. Uh, There's clearly an association between restricting access to those weapons, and the burden of injury, because it only takes one person who's deranged, troubled, or a lunatic to commit mass murder. And uh, the prevalence of handguns is associated with uh, endemic interpersonal violence. Uh, femicide, et cetera. Uh, finally, one thing that people should be aware of, and this may not have been reflected in the email chain because people with strong views tend to be overrepresented, uh, and that was uh, nicely described in your recent podcast on uh, social media. Um, but in Canada, polling has shown that 80% of Canadians supported the recent changes in uh, the federal bills. 80% of Canadians support a ban on military-style assault weapons uh, with large-capacity magazines. Uh, and uh, over 60% of Canada Canadians uh, support uh, restrictions or bans on handguns. Uh, and those things would do nothing to interfere with the ability of, of farmers, ranchers, uh, or hunters to enjoy their sport or protect their property or their livestock. Uh, so the, the political arena um is such that in canada it it is it would be supported to pass that type of legislation even though there would be a vocal minority against it there's evidence to support that legislation Um, we haven't gotten into the economics but there's a clear economic benefit both from the direct hospital costs and the indirect society costs from loss of gdp from all of the people who've been shot and injured or killed Uh, that that could be considered. Um, And the final thing to remember is that the people who are shot, injured or killed have rights too. They didn't ask to be shot, they didn't ask to be killed and they didn't ask to be disabled. And that's a pretty stiff price to pay for ready access to handguns and military style assault weapons. So um, gun control measures that that change the environment by restricting access to those weapons do make a difference. uh, physicians need to be aware of that when they debate the subject. Um, it's okay to have an opinion, but again, the opinion should be formed
1: uh, on evidence. Well, that's that's beautifully summarized. You, you know, I, I, I mean, clearly, every country is different, and the culture of every every country is is unique. Um, but I think putting it in that international perspective is is helpful, and it is relevant, and it is uh, informative. I'm curious if you had any specific comments on, you know, most recently, uh, the New Zealand experience and their ability to ban handguns—I should say ban assault rifles—that quickly. Uh, it seemed like from the outside, as well as talking to folks that you and I both know within New Zealand on the on the surgery side, that that did happen very rapidly based on that event and. Was widely supported, and I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, based on what you've just told us, maybe it would, it, it is and would be the same thing here. But I'm, I'm curious how you you put that into the the lexicon of of what you've talked about.
0: Well, I, I spoke to a senior politician recently, and one of the questions they asked was, um, if the polling data are as favorable as they are, and they are because they're being repeated by multiple independent agencies, why uh, does the political leadership not act on it? And the answer I received was that, uh, well, 80% may support these measures, but the 20% that are vocally opposed will vote based on those measures. And the 80% that support restricting access to those weapons usually do not put it at the top of their party list for who they choose to vote for. Uh, And there also is a uh, difference between uh, rural and urban ridings in terms of what uh, people will support, uh, what the cultural uh, expectations are which also flavors the political discourse. Uh, What happens, and this happened with the Dunblane massacre in the United uh, Kingdom, it happened with the Port Arthur shootings in Australia, and it happened uh, in New Zealand, and it also happened in Canada with the Nova Scotia mass shooting, is that those events are so horrific that they galvanize public opinion. Now, um, people who advocate against uh, any restrictions on the sale of firearms, including handguns, military-style assault weapons, will dismiss multiple mass shooting events uh, saying that they are, you know, rare um, but unfortunate. They're like shark attacks. Uh, but another view of, of multiple shooting events is that they are uh, similar to airline disasters. They're so horrific that everything possible should be done to prevent them. And at the time they happen, they galvanize public opinion to allow, uh, uh, you know, the politicians to move forward with legislation uh, that addresses uh, these issues. Uh, So New Zealand is a small country. It has a population about the same size as Alberta or BC. Um, So it will take a long time to understand the effect of those measures. But based on the evidence we have from the UK and Australia, Banning military style assault weapons uh, should reduce the number of multiple shooting events. Even in the United States, uh, the United States for uh, a decade banned uh, large capacity magazines. And then that was repealed, I think, in 2004, but don't quote me on the date. Uh, and the country as a whole has seen an increase in multiple mass shootings since the repeal of that ban. But there are more than half a dozen states that continue to have bans on large capacity magazines. And now you can drive from state to state. So there's nothing to prevent somebody from purchasing those weapons in one state and taking them to another. And yet, despite that, the states that have large capacity magazine bans have uh, carried forward that reduction in in mass shooting events and have a lower rate than the states that do not have those bans in effect. And they also have fewer deaths for shooting. And it makes sense because if you're going to c- commit mass murder with a, a weapon that is not capable, capable of a semi-automatic fire and doesn't have a large capacity magazine, it will be more difficult to kill more people. Uh, so they have seen beneficial effects from those limited bands. Uh, New Zealand undoubtedly will see the same thing. Uh, there was broad public support because opinion was galvanized by the horror of what happened there. And to some extent, uh, we've seen that happen in Canada. Canada is a much bigger country. Uh, you know, we have a large geographic separation between provinces. Uh, sometimes I think of Canada as the land of the uh, ten kingdoms and three territories, with each one uh, behaving a little bit like an independent nation state. So, uh, you know, we tend not to be as horrified by events that occur far away as the ones that occur in our, our backyard. But uh, you know those events uh, do make a difference in terms of political will,
2: Dr. Korpik, One of the things that we've explored a lot on, on the podcast is uh, the role of surgeons and physicians in the political arena, and more broadly in sort of speaking out around social issues. Um, certainly, we we saw that uh, after the Black Lives Matter uh, movement um, in, over the summer, where you know a number of Physicians and and healthcare systems, frankly, had had their own kind of internal reckonings and and really had to make some some big statements around that whole issue around uh, uh, diversity and, and racial equity. And um, certainly, gun violence is also an important public health issue. Um, and and yet, you know, the, there is always this kind of struggle and this tension and this conflict about whether physicians should be kind of inserting themselves into uh, somewhat charged um, situation or uh, issue, especially one that may have political kind of implications or associations with it. I'm curious sort of your thoughts, having engaged in this work on our broader role societally uh, in doing um, political or societal type of work and speaking out on that, and uh, particularly um, if you feel like if gun control, I and mean, we have sort of talked about this already, but if you feel like that gun control is one of those issues or if you, if, if, you know, to you that the link there is much more clear, given all the, the public health data around it.
0: Well, uh, I think that, you know, again, if the first step is to inform yourself so that you understand what the issues are and uh, decide if it matters to you. Uh, you know, one of my definitions of a great country is one where I can go for a walk and not have to, uh, you know, uh, walk in fear. And I've traveled a, a quite a bit around the world uh, through my professional career I've been very fortunate. And there are plenty of pace, places in the world where you cannot go for a walk, it's not safe to do so. Uh, I live in a community where it is safe to go for a walk and I'd like to keep it that way. Uh, so apart from the, you know, The tragic circumstances involving many of the patients we care for um, and a desire to see fewer people uh, like you know those kids that I described who got shot going home. uh, For their Christmas vacation I just would like to have safe community for myself, my family, my friends Uh, so that's why I think this issue is important and the issue isn't gun control, the issue is reducing the burden of injury due to firearms. And it's not all firearms that are responsible for that burden of injury, it's specific ones that I've described, which are handguns and and, uh, semi-automatic military style assault weapons. Uh, Most physicians are not comfortable um, embracing the media and most people like to avoid conflict. Uh, It takes training and experience to be able to advocate at that level But the good news is that most physicians don't have to do that. the first step most people should take is to get informed so that they understand the issues and that they can speak from evidence so that they're not engaging in social media, uh, forensic feeding chains that are based on opinion and not evidence. Uh, The second thing they can do is participate through their professional societies uh, in formulating statements and guidelines that support evidence-based public health measures that will address uh, the disease or injury that they feel passionate about. And we all do that. We all belong to societies that recommend screening for colorectal cancer. Uh, We uh, historically in injury control advocated for uh, measures that uh, included better enforcement of of speed laws, uh, mandatory seat belts, Back in the 60s, it was controversial to suggest that you shouldn't smoke, but over time, most professional organizations adopted evidence-based recommendations that suggested that smoking was bad for your health uh, in many ways. And, you know, uh, reducing the burden of injury from firearms is no different. It's reviewing the evidence and uh, through your professional organizations and societies, making recommendations based on that evidence that uh, can and will reduce the burden of uh, disease, and that uh, ultimately uh, may be uh, acceptable on the pragmatic parameters I've described, which are uh, culturally acceptable, economically feasible, and finally political will to achieve them. And the politicians uh, are more likely and able to drive through legislation to uh, change uh, public health guidelines and, and enact measures that affect public health if they know that the professional organizations support them. So, for example, with the recent uh, bills that I described, uh, the Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns was uh, one of many professional organizations that had an opportunity to pre- present to the uh, federal government and provide a summary of the evidence that supported the legislation. And uh, those are things that physicians are good at, uh, and they don't require getting up in front of a mic and talking uh in sound bites to potentially uh, hostile uh, questions and being in a pro-con debate uh, with somebody who's taking a polar opposite view that may not be evidence-based. A few, a few will have to do that, uh, but not everybody has to do that. In fact, the majority do not.
2: Dr. Korpik, if people wanna get involved in either the advocacy side of reducing the, the burden from firearm injuries or in the, the research side, What advice do you have uh, for people and uh, where can they turn uh, to get involved?
0: I think that, uh, you know, we just had uh, Grand Rounds uh, in the Department of Critical Care in Calgary and I invited uh, colleagues from Edmonton to join. So the first step is, again, becoming informed through education. And then once you're informed, uh, sharing that with your colleagues, most of whom are not aware of any of this evidence that I've presented today so that we can uh, become uh, better educated professionals and speak from um, evidence and knowledge. And the next step is to get involved through your professional organizations uh, or join an organization that uh, will advocate on your behalf. And Canadian Doctors for Protection from Guns is an example of that. Um, As I said on on CAGS, I've suggested that we have rounds at some point in the future on this issue to educate our members. And then uh, the final step, I think, is to, uh, if you feel passionate about a subject and you've informed yourself that you're aware of the evidence and you can speak from a position of strength, is to uh, help those organizations start um, framing uh, statements or uh, policies that reflect the evidence in terms of tackling this as a public health issue. And so, uh, for example, there are probably 20 professional organizations now that have uh, statements on uh, public health measures to reduce the burden of disease from firearms. Uh, the Canadian Medical Association is, is about to come up with a uh, statement, first one, on uh, addressing this as a public health issue. And those are necessary uh, iterative uh, baby steps that are required uh, to uh, tackle this. Uh, just as uh, the, you know, the framework to identify um, the health effects of smoking and come up with public health recommendations to try and reduce that. That took many years. This will be no different.
2: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at camjsearch. Thanks again.